Social Daily, the Premier League podcast. Welcome to the award-winning Premier League podcast, Football Social Daily. Hit follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and that way you'll never miss a show. And if you like what you hear, then why not leave us a review as well? Would you take David De Gea, Jesse Lingard or even Eden Azar in your team this season? Well, all three of those players are still available. On today's show, we'll file through who we think are the most favourable free agents on the market. Now the Saudi transfer window is closed, you always get those this nearly happened type of stories. What never materialised was a Mo Salah move to the Middle East, but reports today are claiming that the Saudis did place a late bid for Manchester United's Jadon Sancho. And it's international break right now, so how will England get on in their Euro qualifier against Ukraine on Saturday? All of that to come on FSD, the Premier League podcast full of top flight news and opinion. My name's Niall McCorn and it's your usual crew on the show today. Newcastle fan Marley Anderson and Man United supporter Joel Tudor. Good morning, boys. Good morning. Good morning. Now, you always hear Marley talk about how he got on at 11 aside, so... Can I indulge you in my seven-a-side game last night? Uh, there's only one reason why you're offering that. It's clearly, <laughs> something's happened. Go on, take the stage. Well, to be fair, it was a must-win game. We were playing the team that was one point above us, and we were struggling to get seven. Like we were ringing in favors, trying to get seven. Oh, it was a nightmare. Like the one game where you want people available, the one game where you want a couple of subs that you can bring on every 10 minutes to kind of freshen things up when it's 30 degrees outside and we're scratching around with with six and a keeper who's got an ACL so can't actually play out on, on pitch. And yeah, yours truly scored an absolute firecracker into the top bins. Define, define firecracker. Just lashed it into the top corner. I had one that went over and one of their players was like, oh, don't worry, we'll let him have those all day. And I thought, do you know what? Next one, I'm going to f- score now. He said that <laughs> and cracked it in top corner, like maybe a couple of minutes later. And I just looked at him and I was like, yeah, give me them all day. That's no problem. Um, but what the reason is actually I wanted to mention it is not because I scored. It's because something happened to me, which had never happened to me in any small sided game of football before. I got booked. <laughs> what? I got booked in seven aside. Well, you had an actual ref. Yeah, there was a ref. It's a league, so we got. I got. Right, I got what, a yellow what, card. What was the cause of? What was the cause of your yellow card? Well, it was one-one at the time, and they had this winger who was just a bit too quick for me, and he got past me. So you were cynical. And I thought I just. He, he was clean. He was clean through. So I was like, "There's nothing I can. I've got to take him." So I swiped him out, and um, even the guy got up and and he said to me that was a bit cynical, and I was like, "To be fair, that I can't really argue. It was definitely cynical." But I got booked. I didn't think you could get yellow card in seven aside or five aside. No VAR as well to save you. Well, I don't think VAR would have saved me, to be honest. <laughs> I, I mean, it probably would have been overturned into a red, yeah. Um, anyway, we're not here to talk about my seven aside endeavours. We're here to talk about some of the latest Premier League news and opinion. And it is the international break at the moment. So let's discuss England, who have a Euro qualifier against Ukraine tomorrow. Obviously, due to the war between Ukraine and Russia, the Ukrainians are not playing their home matches in their home country. So this one will be played at the Stadion Mieszki in Wroclaw. England are top of Group C at the moment with four wins from their four qualifying games. They should make it five wins from five games against Ukraine, shouldn't they, Marley? Yeah, they should do. It was um, it's fairly comfortable in the uh, 
in the return sort of fixture, if you want to call it that. I think it was uh, 2-0 to England and, and fairly sort of straightforward for them. So you expect them to win. It's, it's like they do with every um, every qualifier. You know, you, you expect England to come through as, um, as, as they usually do. So it's um Ukraine you kinda got some decent players and if you look at um you look at their squad it's you know it's it's packed with that sort of players that can uh that can hurt you on the day type of thing. But you know, I, I still don't think they're they're good enough to to uh cause a sort of upset if you like. Um but they'll be just concentrating on finishing above Italy in their uh in the five team group because North Macedonia and Malta are not gonna provide too much. Uh, in the way of you know stru- uh, strict harsh uh, opposition, so they're they're they've just got to finish above either Italy or England. They're already six points behind England in the group, um, and three points ahead of Italy, having played a game more. So for them, it's just keeping them at bay, and if they can nick a point or even just keep the goal difference down, it'll help uh, in the long run. I think. I think there was one period, Joel, under Roy Hodgson, where England, I think, didn't lose a single game. Uh, under his tenure I'm not sure whether that's accurate or not I seem to remember reading that somewhere that under Roy Hodgson England didn't lose a single qualification game but when it got to the tournaments they weren't able to perform with all credit to Southgate and although we discussed him potentially moving on from the England job after the Euros and being replaced by Pep amidst other rumours we have to give him credit because not only has he kept England strong during qualification he's also got them to perform during tournaments as well yeah the latter part is the biggest point of all I think you know, prior to that 2018 World Cup, it was the 2016 Euros. And I don't think I've seen just as bad of a campaign from an England squad than that, you know, where they got dumped out by Iceland. And it was just, even the squad itself, it felt like a really pivotal regeneration period where you had the likes of Danny Sturridge and Jamie Vardy. And um, I can't remember who the defence was now. Was it Chris Smalling? And I think, I don't know if Phil Jones was in and out of the team. Like all these kinds of... Yeah, this is what I mean, just really, just not great quality. And then suddenly in 2018, it felt like this new crop of talent was coming through with like a young Marcus Rashford kind of integrating himself. Harry Kane was imposing himself more on the team. And it started to just flourish a little bit more. But I mean, when you talk about the actual uh, qualifiers themselves, I think the last time England didn't make it was the 2008 Euros when... England played Croatia at Wembley. I still remember that game like it was yesterday. I can't believe we even lost that game. But they're never given to get out of the group. We saw um, just a couple of years ago, Italy not getting, sorry, yeah, the Netherlands not getting out of their group for for the World Cup. And so it's just, it just testament to just the consistency that they can show. But I think the, the main aspect of it all has just been performing in World Cups and in Euros, which has been always the case. You always smash the group stages and do incredibly well and then suddenly they get to the big stage and they're like a deer in headlights where they don't perform and now we're actually seeing more dominating performances which is really good to see. How do you think Southgate will approach these two games? Because after this qualifier with Ukraine, Marley, there's a friendly against Scotland, friendly in loosely inverted commas because they never are against the Scots, are they, when England are playing against those north of the border? Do you think that he'll pick a more familiar side against Ukraine I'm talking Pickford in goal, Maguire at the back, Harry Kane up front. Whilst against Scotland, he might give some opportunities to some of the newer faces in the team. I'm thinking Ebera Eze, Eddie Nketiah, someone like Levi Colwill or Fikayo Tomori, who haven't had as many games at the back. I think so, yeah. If you look at the, the sort of squad, you can tell who's uh, sort of first team and who's sort of 
on the fringes of of you know never been given a chance before really um so you look at that and probably think yeah the two games it's, it's kind of perfect because you're not gonna even though the it's weird because you, you know they're good enough to affect the game if they can affect the game in the Premier League they can affect anyone in the European qualifiers but usually you will see you know the tried and tested stuff it's Southgate he's you know he's he's ready salted crisp isn't he he doesn't take much chances he's he's not. He's not, uh, you know, he's not going to come up with some random formation and, and play Maguire, is it? I think that's even kind of really salty crisps. I think he's more like a Jacob's cream cracker. <laughs> yeah. You could have a ready salty crisp on its own, right? But you, a Jacob's cracker, if you're eating them plain, you're a bit strange. True that, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> Dry your mouth up. It feels like a podcast in itself of uh, naming <laughs> confectionery that uh, the football managers could be. But yeah, it's, it's, it's one of them, in it, where... Against Scotland, the only team taking that game properly seriously would be Scotland because they've got a, a chip on the shoulder when it comes to playing England. And oh, we've got to beat them. It's like, well, it, it, even if you do it to friendly, it's pointless, mm. lads. But you crack on. Um, Can I just point out that Sean Dyche is definitely a Yorkie? <laughs> I was just thinking, I just wanted to ask Marley, I've just been thinking about that. What would Steve Bruce be? Don a kebab. <laughs> That's not confectionery. <laughs> it is to him. Pop some like That's sweets. a main meal. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Actually, that's a good one. Something that not many people like: bounty. Bounty. They're all they're always there, but not many people like them. I quite like a bounty. That's put me off bounties. That, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm going to keep thinking of that through the podcast now. <laughs> but then again, I always think people say when they slag off chocolate, there is no bad chocolate. There is all that your chocolate just isn't bad. It doesn't matter even if it's not so good chocolate. There can't be bad chocolate. It doesn't exist. All chocolate is good. Chocolate social daily. You can definitely tell the difference though when you're not a Cadbury's. But let's get back to the football anyway. <laughs> no, I was quite enjoying this. It's more in- more interesting than the international break. It's true. England do take on Ukraine tomorrow in one of their European Championship qualification games. England will qualify, I think, for that tournament. They've won four out of four. Italy has struggled, even though they've only had two games. Ukraine, if England beat them, they're their closest challengers. It's almost certain, I think, that they'll be going through to the tournament next summer. Next on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the free agent list because now that the transfer window is closed, there are a few people knocking around who still don't have a club and some of them are half decent as well. We'll talk about it next on FSD. This is Football Social Daily. Welcome back to the podcast. We are an award-winning Premier League show, so why not hit subscribe? And that way you can be notified as soon as a new episode is released. Content for you right throughout the week, so make sure you do that and you'll be updated every time we release a new episode. We're going to talk about free agents now as it's that time of the season where there are plenty of players who are still clubless and some pretty big names are on that free agent list, Joel. I'm thinking the likes of David De Gea, who left Manchester United this summer after many years as a servant. Jesse Lingard, who was reported to go back to West Ham, but never did. Are you surprised that those two players in particular haven't found new clubs this summer? I'm actually astounded that David De Gea still not got a club. He feels almost like the Jose Mourinho of a goalkeeper where football's almost left him behind. And now you're starting to see the effects of it because... I thought as soon as he would have been out of contract at United, there'll be at least a decent Champions League club that would snatch him up pretty quickly. But it just seems like he's had options. I definitely know he's had options offered to him. But again, it's almost like the situation that Hugo Lloris has found himself in, which is that 
he doesn't really think that the clubs that are being offered to him are this, the right caliber for him. So now he's basically scratching around. I know he's got a bit more of a pick of the bunch because Hugo Lloris is still contracted, whereas De Gea can choose who he wants. But it's almost like at that stage of the season now where no one's going to take him as a first choice because everyone's kind of set. The only way he's going to join a team is if there's a really bad injury to a top club. Let's say Chelsea ended up having Sanchez injured and then their reserve keeper injured, then he would be brought in kind of thing. But it's kind of a shame because you would have thought that he would have slotted in straight away as a first teamer. But I think it just shows that teams are changing now. They're almost looking first and foremost at can he play football? Then the secondary trait is can he shot stop? Can he actually make a save? I always say I think being a good shot stopper is the bare minimum expected of a goalkeeper. It really grinds my gears when I hear people say, oh, he's a really good shot stopper. Well, yeah, without sounding all Roy Keane, that's his job. Keep the ball out the net. If you're a bad shot stopper, you shouldn't be a goalkeeper. It's bizarre, this whole, oh, he's a good shot stopper. Well, that's the bare minimum that's expected of him. You know, you should take that as a given. Can he come out and catch crosses? Can he command his box? Can he distribute well with both arms and feet? And they're the other attributes that you say, Joel, that that managers are looking for. Yeah, it just seems now, though, that the ball at the player's feet is almost so important. It almost takes away his ability to just be an all-round good goalkeeper. Because I know, for example, Kepa, who's now strangely on loan at Real Madrid. Again, that's because of a circumstance like Courtois being injured for a long time. He's not a great shot stopper in terms of I I think David De Gea is way better than him in terms of pure pure goalkeeping ability, but Kepa's better at the ball with the ball at his feet, and that's why Real Madrid have taken him. So he's in a bit of a difficult spot at the moment. If it was like five years ago, then I think he would have been snapped up quite quickly. I mean, in in his circumstances, but when football was five years prior, now it's just moved on so much to the extent that I don't even think he's going to have a club until another couple of months when we see a few more injuries or. Nick Pope ends up getting cast aside because he can't kick a ball. I'm not sure Nick Pope <laughs> and David De Gea are uh, exactly upgrades on one another, are they? I think they're both players who can't kick very well. True, but only one of them wants 400 grand a week like he's been on. I think that's the the main point of it. I think um, De Gea... Probably... Do you think that's why he hasn't got a club yet? Because of how much money he was on at Man United? Yeah, because even if he takes half of that, which maybe. Maybe he's sort of willing to do. How many teams out there are paying two hundred grand a week for for a goalkeeper? Like even Saudi haven't chucked two hundred grand at a goalie. I don't think. I think the only goalie I can think of that they've signed is Edward Mendy, and I don't think he's on two hundred grand. So uh, you know, it's a it's a very small pool. He's he's sort of um, attracting really, and that's this is one of the things about leaving a leaving a top club like Man United. You know, if you're leaving on a free or you're leaving because you're pushed, you're not going up. Like you're going sideways at best and you're probably going backwards. You're probably going to, you know, a Turkish team will always want you or a Saudi team will always want you. I expected him to go straight back to Spain. Um, And as soon as Courtois got his injury for Real Madrid, I thought there's 100% he's going back there. But Real Madrid, you know, decided to go for Kepa on loan. It is, I know De Gea is getting worse, but, Kepa has been, you know, useless since... Well, apparently Kepa spoke to Thomas Tuchel at Bayern Munich as well. And it was kind of a pick of Bayern or Real Madrid. How's that happened? This guy who's been dreadful for Chelsea. How has that happened? And I reckon even if even if 
he'd moved. Like they were talking to each other fine, but it wasn't. It was never a permanent move for either team, was it? It was a loan. And I think if you're costing eighty million and people only want you on loan, it's because they don't believe in you enough to go and pay something similar to something near the eighty million pound fee that he cost, or seventy two, whatever it was, with with the the conversion of euros or whatever it was. But no, it's a, it's a weird one. I expected De Gea to go back to to Real Madrid, but they chose Kepa, um, and he's shown his colours straight away by saying, I, "I don't want to go back to Chelsea straight away." He's only been there a month. Courtois is still injured. You think you're getting a game when when Courtois comes back, mate? Christ, have some respect for a team that put eighty million pound of investment into you, and he's uh, he's there saying, "Well, Real Madrid call, um, you know, you can't you can't turn it down." And when when I came here with Chelsea a couple of years ago, I wanted to go to the home dressing room rather than the away one. It's like you're you're probably the most disrespectful footballer I can think of. <laughs> you're refusing to come off the pitch with Sarri all them years ago. And showing your colours again, he's an absolute ball bag. So Kepa is at Real Madrid, but Eden Hazard isn't. It never happened for him, Joel, did it, at the Bernabeu? But I think sometimes people overlook just how good he was at Chelsea. I think people forget how much he dominated the Premier League in a blue shirt when he was there. It's a sad scenario, this one. It's like I mentioned yesterday when we were discussing Jude Bellingham, where I think it takes a certain type of personality to not even just thrive there but just survive there just as a bare minimum and I feel like with Hazard he came in took the number seven shirt from Cristiano Ronaldo and it's just almost been just nothing since then I know he's had a lot of injury problems which is quite strange because at Chelsea he was playing a good amount of games every single season and I don't know if he's had that one kind of triggering injury that's almost consistently kept him out but when you look at his stats at Real Madrid, he's like an unrecognisable player, you know, playing 16 games in his debut season, 14 games, 18 games, 6 games, and then he scored 4 goals in 4 years. I mean, that is just pretty... For a player of his level, something's gone so clearly wrong, and I've been hearing a lot of rumours that he's probably considering retirement now, and... That in itself kind of shows just how much he's fallen out of love for the game. I think during his time at Real Madrid, because he received so much criticism for his performances, for not being available. Like I said, if you're down and your chips are down at Real Madrid, no one's going to pick you back up. You've got to literally pick yourself back up because the media are probably 10 times worse than they are here in terms of hounding players and criticising them. And that's and even the fans themselves, they'll call you out if, if it's needed. So it's a... It really is a shame because I think the only place he could have probably gone to actually try and rediscover something is Chelsea. But I think that that the water's under the bridge now and that's kind of the, the last place I see it. And he's 32 now as well. And I think early on in his Real Madrid career, Vinicius Junior just burst onto the scene, didn't he? And then, you know, you're competing against this young guy who's full of energy and isn't injury prone. And then, you know, you're the one that's strapped up on the sidelines with a, with a knock for whatever reason. And then once Vinicius gets his chance, he takes it with both hands and then you're on the back foot all, all together then, aren't you? Yeah, it's, 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 again, it's very, very circumstantial. But if you're not available for the team, you're never going to get in. It's just the bare minimum of what what's required, especially at a club like Real Madrid. But I just never really envisioned it because his fee, you know, it was a 100 million fee when he first left. But again, at Chelsea, he was the man. And then at Real Madrid, he's just another man. And that's what I think a lot of players struggle with, the fact that they have to compete with players who are as equally good as they are. 
um, in a, such a really high-pressured environment. So, yeah, I think you're definitely right. People forget just how good he was. He's easily one of the best Premier League players I've ever seen. In terms of raw ability, he could change a game on his own. I always remember that game against Arsenal when Francis Coquelin literally got shrugged off him while he was trying to grab all from behind him and then he scored that individual goal. Like That is the quality he has, but he just never truly showed it in Spain. He used to do that all the time, didn't he? Especially around the edge of the box where it would look like there were too many bodies in his way and then he'd just find some space or find an angle and then he'd fizz a, a shot into the corner or something. He's just got that about him. And the one goal that I remember from Eden Hazard was the one against Spurs where I seem to remember he didn't do a great deal that whole game. And then it drops to him on the edge of the box and he curls it into the top corner, just steers it beautifully past Lloris and then Leicester City go on to win the Premier League. You know, that's... um. That's the goal that I remember Eden Hazard for. So Leicester fans, I think, are, are big advocates of Hazard, who is a free agent at the moment. The final free agent we're going to talk about is Jesse Lingard, who we thought Marley might be going back to West Ham. At least that was what the rumours were saying a couple of weeks ago. But it turns out he never got his move back to London Stadium and he's a free agent. So 30 years old, former England, well, an England international, former Manchester United player. Nowhere to go at the moment. Yeah, no, nowhere to go. Uh... I'm struggling to understand it, really. Like, do you, what's what's the plan with with Jesse Lingard? I remember him doing an interview a couple of months ago, and he was like, "Yeah, I've had offers and blah blah blah, and it's just not right for me." And you know, it turns out all the cliches and stuff like that. But you're a footballer, like, just play or or retire. You know, don't you know, don't wait around. It's it's not inconceivable that. People just forget about you and just go and play. You know when Lingard's playing and when he's focused, he's he's he can play brilliantly. Seen that at the West Ham spell that that is now synonymous with his career. You think about Lingard, we all we all think about that six month spell where he scored like eight goals in fourteen games or whatever it was. Do you think that that's kind of Jesse Lingard in a nutshell? You think of the big moments in his career. You think of that West Ham spell, like you said, and then you think of the twenty sixteen FA Cup final against Palace where he scores the winner. And then maybe that moment against Arsenal, which Joel referenced on the pod a couple of weeks ago about him moonwalking at the Emirates and all of that stuff. But that was just... He that was a just, special place in my heart for that. that. Well, that was just one game. Whereas in terms of, you know, and, and so was the FA Cup final, that was just one game. So you're talking about defining moments and periods in Jesse Lingard's career. Is that a key issue, the consistency? And maybe that's why he hasn't been picked up by anyone? Yeah, because you think, you know, to continue your point there, like... If you think of those moments and you think of those those little bookmarks in his career, you you've then just got to carry on and think what happened between those bookmarks. What happened when uh, you know two weeks after Lingard was doing his doing his silly dancing at the Emirates, like he, he just turning in average performances and in, in and out of the Man United team as he was for eight years, ten years, whatever it was. After West Ham, what did he do? He he chose to go to. Nottingham Forest as if it was as if he was gonna be like the saviour of Nottingham Forest and you know, took hundred grand a week and, and whatever it was and was was out the team as soon as soon as Steve Cooper realised that he was getting the Lingard that sat on the bench at Man United for so long and not the West Ham version, you know, they realised it was a bad investment and never looked like sending his one year contract, which was always strange, because we could be sat here if he signed a normal contract of three years or four years, he'd be sat here still playing for, for Nottingham Forest and still having, 
you know, the, the income coming in, whether he's in the team or out the team, he wouldn't be frozen out like he is now. He's he's all of a sudden just in limbo. His career is sort of up in the air now. Um, I don't know. If, is there anywhere around the world that's got a, a transfer window open? Turkey. Is it still Turkey? I bet he doesn't need a transfer window, does he? Because he's a free agent. Was it Roy Carroll or Scott Carson or someone went to, was it Trebzonspor and ended up winning the Turkish League a few years ago? I think Scott Carson was there, yeah. I'm pretty sure Roy Carroll went to somewhere like Cyprus, I recall. Like Nicosia or somewhere like that. I'm sure he went, you just reminded me then. I remember he was in the the Champions League for a couple of games. Lanorca or someone like that. Lanarka, yeah. Hmm, interesting, but Jesse Lingard is a free agent. Scott Carson was at Bursaspor. And did they win the title? I think they won their first ever league or something when he was there. Did they? I don't know. Uh... No, they finished eighth. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, he finished. That's the end of that lovely story. Yeah, he finished eighth, and um, he was a runner-up in the Turkish. What Cup. year? What year was that? Twenty eleven. That was a long time ago. Yeah, well, in 2009-10, versus Spore were the league champions of Turkey. So maybe they just decided that they were gonna, you know, build on their success by signing Scott Carson. And he finished eighth. <laughs> and they finished well. eighth. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for the free agent chat on today's Football Social Daily. Next up, we're going to talk about some of the latest newspaper stories because this always happens every transfer window, about a week or so, or ironically, when it's the international break, after the transfer window is closed, you always hear these stories about what potentially could have happened and what moves were on the table but never made it to the media. We're going to try and comb through a couple of those next on FSD. See you after this. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, final part of Friday's episode. Our next show will be on Monday. And to make sure you keep on top of when that's released, the best thing to do is hit follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Now, the transfer window has been shut for over a week now. So naturally, the stories are starting to surface of the moves that didn't quite happen Last week on the show, we were discussing a potential world record bid for Mo Salah from a Saudi Arabian club. That never materialised in the end. It was unconfirmed that reports of £215 million were on the way to Liverpool. But what has been confirmed by a couple of sources is that it wasn't Mo Salah that was a late target for the Saudis in the transfer window, Joel. It was Manchester United's Jadon Sancho, who we spoke about earlier this week on FSD when he released a post on his social media hitting back at Manchester United manager Eric Ten Hag. Al Etifak, the club that Steven Gerrard is the manager of, apparently lodged a late bid to try and sign Jadon Sancho on loan. But Manchester United wanted to put a £50 million obligation to buy inside the loan deal and therefore the move fell through. A shock or not a shock? How do you see this one? Honestly, this whole story around Sancho is the definition of a domino effect because the media, I don't believe that story one bit purely because they're just fanning the flames of what is already a hot topic at the moment. Because let's say Ten Hag never came out and said what he said about Sancho not training well or whatever. Not a chance would this story have come out because it just wouldn't be relevant if no one would really kind of bat an eyelid to it. But the fact that he's almost facing a little bit of discipline from United and a little bit of backlash because of his reaction to Ten Hag's comments, suddenly 
it's the perfect story to fit alongside the fact that he's a little bit unhappy potentially and there's a little bit of conflict between him and the manager and I just don't believe it for one minute to be honest I think a lot of um, journalists have come out and said that there's not quite a lot of truth in it um, quite convenient that it came out just after the deadline whereas everyone's been really on the ball with who Saudi want regardless so no I don't think it was ever the case I don't think he would even consider it to be honest he's only 23 I know there's been younger players who've gone over to Saudi but if he was to go to somewhere like there I feel like before doing that he still needs to prove himself I think he still wants to achieve a lot in football regardless I think 23 is just so young to go to to go to a place like that um, especially of a player of his quality and what he can do but no I think it's just a really really convenient story where the club aren't going to come out and dispute it because why would you come out and dispute it It no club really comes and disputes transfer rumours and you know Manchester United keep the lights on at half of these media places what what would they do without mentioning United's name every two days because that's all I see at the minute just a new story of a training ground leak or some kind of conflict in the dressing room you can't dispute it because United can't come out every single week saying that's not true that's not true because the minute they don't say something's not true everyone will think it is true so it's just a pointless scenario they could start doing what Sir Alex used to do which is just ban the reporters from the publications that are posting these stories they could potentially I don't think a ban is necessary for a transfer rumour because that's kind of part of parcel of the football. I do remember Sir Alex Ferguson banning journalists for unfair criticism after games or criticism of the players. See, that's, that's something that I disagree with Sir Alex on. And I know he's one of the greatest managers ever, so it seems a bit rich for me to sit here in my office chair and say, Sir Alex got this wrong. But I think criticism of players is a matter of opinion. And therefore... If a journalist wants to write in his column that he doesn't think Roy Keane performed well enough or he thinks Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's off the boil, I think that's his prerogative and he's entitled to do that. However, writing false stories about a player wanting to move away or training ground bust-ups, I think that's more serious and can have a bigger effect on a group mentality than a journalist just saying, oh, I thought Gary Neville was terrible at the weekend. Yeah, I can understand both points perfectly. I think it depends on how the criticism comes across, but I think we're forgetting that So Alex Ferguson had such a grip on not only the media, but just the Manchester United in general, that let's say Alex Ferguson was in charge during this Sancho, Sancho scenario or when it was the Mason Greenwood scenario. The club wouldn't be deciding if Greenwood was allowed to come back into the squad. It'd be Sir Alex Ferguson that decides if he comes back in. Whereas Ten Hag's not got that kind of power. I don't think... I can't really name many managers in football now that have that kind of power anymore. Because it, you have to be a manager who's been there for decades. You're literally part of the furniture. You literally control and almost have a pseudo board seat at the top whereas everyone else is almost just kind of getting fed drips from from above so i think it's just a very different circumstance you can't compare it and i don't think ten Hag would even pay attention to that he seems like a guy who just wants to focus purely on the football and if the media want to talk then they'll talk regardless and he lets that happen but i i agree if i was that kind of if i was a manager i would 100 percent be keeping people out who are constantly trying to create public reaction based on false stories it's not well some of the other stories that have surfaced from newspapers and publications up and down the uk this morning are that fulham are in talks with harrison reed over a new deal after they rejected a three million bid from wolves 
for the midfielder late in the transfer window. Bournemouth rejected a late £20 million bid from Spurs for Lloyd Kelly and Liverpool and Newcastle are interested in the 24-year-old. And talking about Newcastle, how about this, Marley? According to the Spanish publication AS, Liverpool allegedly made a £100 million bid for Bruno Guimaraes just before the transfer window closed. Now, I think sometimes you have to take the Continental Press with a pinch of salt. In fact, you have to take all transfer rumours with a pinch of salt. £100 for Bruno just before the deadline. Liverpool did need a midfielder. Can you see that one being true? Uh, No, I I didn't hear that, to be fair. Um, I'm not surprised there's interest in him, but as of of right now and what's just happened, you know, um, that's not... Uh, a forward move for him as of right now it might be at the end of the season when Newcastle get in the Europa League and Liverpool get back in the Champions League or or something like that but coming off the back of it I think Bruno's Bruno's instantly fell in love at Newcastle he's, he's settled straight away um, he's just had his uh, kid and he's just announced that he's pregnant again so if you think of like personal life moving moving things around like that bloody hell Bruno's pregnant again yeah <laughs> that's why that's why he's been off the boil this last two weeks. He's he's, he's with child, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, he's. Uh, I think he's very happy and, and settled. I think the only club that could really come in and and sort of take him would be uh, would real would be Real Madrid or or Barcelona. Um, Not even Man City. But, I know that they've just signed Mateus Nunes from Wolves, so they don't need a midfielder. But you know they've got obviously significant pulling power now, being the best team in the league. Maybe, maybe. but. I've never sort of seen him as as that uh, sort of a city type of player. I don't know. I don't know why. Um, it would be quality for City, to be fair. But I, I don't know. I'd, I just don't. I think I think that'd be more of a decision for him rather than. I think if if Barcelona or Real Madrid really wanted him, it, it wouldn't be. It'd be like, yeah, I'd be interested, and then he'd feel bad about like you know leaving Newcastle. But if if we drop off. You know that's that's the risk you run with with players as good as him because he's he's proved that you know he's in the Brazil squad, he's in he's in the starting team uh, a lot of the time, and it's it's a case of like staying there really. So um, I'm not surprised he's getting interest, but Liverpool at the moment where they bid for him is not a is not a, a genuine option. I don't think hundred million quid it'd probably be over what six years or whatever it would be fifteen million a season plus a a lump sum at some point or something, Liverpool wouldn't hit you with that money straight away. So the FFP would be offset a little bit and it, it wouldn't have made sense. And clearly if there was a bid, which there might, there might have been, uh, it clearly wasn't enough to, to tempt anyone. Well, I thought that was interesting to read that Bruno Guimaraes was the target of a £100 million bid late in the transfer window. Let's reverse and rewind back to the Mo Salah situation. Something you said the other day, Joel, was... If Mo Salah doesn't move to Saudi Arabia this transfer window, he'll go in the near future. And that's what all of the reports are saying. They're saying that this move to Saudi for Mo Salah is simply paused. It's on hold until the next transfer window. Yeah, these kind of ones are inevitable. And it's purely just because of the region as well. Like I mentioned, they're not buying him for football reasons. They're buying him because of his image and his brand and what he represents to that region in general. Um... And I think even if it gets to 2024, the summer of 2024, 
they probably won't get near the 200 million mark because I think Saudi were just trying to dangle the golden carrot as the deadline got closer and seeing if Liverpool would crumble. But let's say they send an offer at the start of next summer for around 150 million, I think Liverpool will will accept it. And that's purely because they'll have the nice stretch of time to plan ahead. I mean, I bet they're already thinking now that this bid has already come in, I'll be 100% sure that they've had some kind of meeting to say, okay, if this bid comes in again next year, what are we doing? Have we got a contingency plan of who's going to come in? Um, Do we know what kind of budget we're going to put towards maybe a replacement or in other areas like a defensive midfielder? So I think right now Liverpool are already doing some kind of crisis control, making sure that they know exactly what targets they want next summer because next year he's 32. Like I said, I still think he does have a good two or three years at the top, but is that worth missing out on 150 million and when are they going to get that kind of money again because Liverpool's hands in terms of transfers have notoriously always been quite tough and quite tied in terms of trying to juggle money around potentially selling to buy so I think from a business perspective it is purely just stupid to let this situation go and I think Liverpool fans now will probably start accepting the fact that he is probably going to go rather than just leaving in the back door on the last day of the transfer window Right, that's it for today's Football Social Daily. Nice one, Joel. Nice one, Marley. And thanks to you for listening through the course of this week. If you hit subscribe, you'll be notified when new episodes are ready. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if you've not listened to FSD for a while, that we are just going through a few alterations behind the scenes at the podcast. So the upload schedule isn't quite as regular as maybe you will have been used to in the past. But hopefully that's getting a little bit tighter and a little bit more consistent as the weeks go on. We've got some pretty cool stuff, hopefully, in the pipeline for you, so stick with us on FSD. But have a great weekend, whatever you're up to, and we'll speak to you on Monday. See you then. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.